when I went to my wardrobe closet this morning, I saw the blue blazer. I thought, do I wear it or not? Obviously, I didn't. But thank you for last week um, honoring Tom. It was just a wonderful moment, I think, for the rest of us pastors to see that because we love him so much and what he's done for uh, so many here in our church. And thank you for the way in which you support us as pastors. It is, it's a joy to be a part of a church that supports their pastors the way you do. So thank you. Today we're going to conclude our sermon series in the lectionary text. And the path, this passage that we're going to look at is from Matthew 16. It's full of dramatic tension. And if it's full of the dramatic tension, I think, that really defines our lives as followers of Jesus in its most fundamental sense. And so here is my, I translated it, and I'm just going to read my translation of the passage. It will be on the slides. Um, you can follow there, or you can just listen, and you can close your eyes if you find, out, find that that's uh, more, better for you to do. So here's the passage from uh, the text for today from Matthew 16, 21 through 28. From then on, Jesus the Christ began to reveal and make known to his followers that it was necessary for him to leave and go to Jerusalem and to undergo the suffering of many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and to be killed and on the third day to be raised and awakened out of the de of death. Taking Jesus aside from the group, Peter began to rebuke and admonish him, saying, in the name of God's mercy, forbid that this ever happen to you. Jesus quickly turned and spoke to Peter, get behind me and get out of my face, Satan. You are a roadblock in the way I go, for your thoughts are not set on God but on human things. In this opportune moment, Jesus turned around, faced his followers, saying, if any person desires to come after me and stay the course, let this one deny and not identify with their self. Instead, let them take up their cross and follow me. Jesus further said, for whoever may desire to save their life, the life they have, they will lose it. However, whoever might lose their life in following me to the end, they will discover it. For what kind of gain is it if one gains the universe around them but loses the very one thing they have, their life? Consider this. What will a human being use as a means of exchange to buy back their life? Look to what is on the horizon. The Son of Man is on the verge of coming forth in the glory of his Father with the angels, and at that time he will give to each according to their deeds done in faith. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing in our midst that shall not die before seeing the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Living Christ, you who suffered or rejection and death and were raised on the third day through the spirit of, of life and the spirit of eternity, awaken to us what we cannot see, and in seeing, may we know your word to us today. Amen. David Baum, uh, an organizational consultant, I don't know this individual personally, I just kind of found the blog on the internet when I was typing in about walking conversations. He wrote an essay that's on the internet called The Power of Walking Conversations. 
And I found it intriguing because he ponders why walking helps a conversation. What does walking do to a conversation? He remarks that in walking and talking, quote, our bodies are engaged, more open and stimulated, and the external environment and the motion stimulate our nervous system, making it more highly activated and keeping us focused and present. This kinesthetic form activates our intuition and our creativity because both the mind and the body are engaged. Have you ever experienced that? A conversation with someone, walking and talking, going in the same direction, not looking face to face, but going in the same direction allows for something that, he says, doesn't necessarily happen in face-to-face -face conversations normally. Because he notes how in those kind of conversations, um, things sometimes that are too intimidating to talk about, because you're face-to-face, -face, don't come up. But sometimes when you say, let's go take a walk, things can kind of open up. And so, I find these words very helpful in understanding the walking and talking way of Jesus. He's walking and talking with his disciples, and it's in this context that we find this, this text that we are in today. So if you are Jesus and you need to have a hard conversation with your followers you, about the expectations for the journey ahead, you go for a walk and you have a talk. So here it is. Jesus had just affirmed that Peter confessed, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And he receives that. But then Jesus says, don't, don't tell anybody. <laughs> but keep it quiet. Keep it quiet. Which has always made Bible scholars kind of like curious constantly and writing essays upon essays about the messianic secret, which we won't go into today. <laughs> they start walking and talking because Jesus knew that there were things about what a Messiah should be or not be that they were, going to, they were not going to understand. And he knew that. And he was going to have to slowly unfold for them that it was not the case as it was in their minds. Here's some quick notes about the passage. What we find is that Jesus is speaking outside the expectations that his followers hold of him. Commitments are going to collide. This conversation is a crucial moment between Jesus and his followers, uh, and, and especially Peter. The words Jesus says are, will be instructive for us as well. I think this is, a this is a crucial point. Jesus is not inviting a philosophical and theological speculation about life's meaning. He's instead pointing to issues of an existential predicament for those who follow him. That makes Jesus more like a Zen master than a Bible teacher. The revelation on the horizon, the glory to come, is to be understood through his suffering and through his death and his resurrection, not separate from it, right? It is also important to remember that in Jesus' time, as well as ours, people were and are at different places in following. Even among us here, there are those who are maybe outside looking in, wondering, what is this all about? There are some who are taking ten tentative steps. Some of us are challenged and questioning, but are trying our best to stay course in following Jesus. And then there are those of us who have been at it for a long time and are wise in the ways of losing their lives and finding life in the way of Jesus. I think we have to keep this in mind in order to understand the way in which things are working and the levels of conversations that we have together about following Jesus. So first I'll focus on this rebuke 
that Jesus has of Peter, following Peter's admonishment of him. Then what I'm going to say are these, what are these cone-like sayings of Jesus that he's giving to us? And then I hope to bring a word of encouragement to each of us as we seek to follow Christ. Jesus rebukes Peter for being a stumbling block on his path, even to the point of speaking the word Satan to him, the Satan that he encountered in the wilderness that, it, that challenged him early on in the beginning of his ministry. One commentator on this pas passage says that Peter was ready to receive Jesus as Christ or as Messiah, but as to how Jesus was to be a Christ or Messiah was an anathema to Peter. It's a contradiction. So I wonder, Peter's thinking might have been, well, no Messiah that is worth the name should be subject to earthly leaders, right? No, the Messiah by nature is to rule victoriously and triumphantly over them. Now I was wondering historically, why would Peter, what might be in the background here? And I thought, well, I was thinking about the intertestamental period. I don't normally think about the intertestamental period, but I did think about the intertestamental period this week. And I was thinking about the Maccabean martyrs, right? There was this period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the history of Israel, where the Maccabeans were trying to get rid of the oppressors, uh, the, the, the Greeks who were oppressing them. And these Maccabean martyrs, Judas Maccabeus being one of them, were like these guerrilla fighters who were literally trying to fight off the oppressing forces. And they were doing it for, for the sake of the people. And Peter and the disciples and others may have had something like this in their mind, like a warrior king or a warrior leader who was going to walk in and who was going to overthrow those forces, right? But the reality, I think, is where Peter finds so offensive is that Jesus is going to submit himself to the spiritual leadership of Israel and be rejected by it. That was, was an anathema. That was hard to understand. Why, why, would, why would the leaders? I found it very funny. One of the commentators that I read this week didn't translate it um, as spiritual, as um, elders, uh, chief priests, and scribes, but translated it as church leaders, senior pastors, and Bible scholars. <laughs> I thought, oh boy, that puts a twist on the whole thing, doesn't it? Anyhow, you get this confrontation. There are different ways of looking at what a Messiah is to be and to do between Peter and Jesus. And Jesus is going to bring this to light, right? This conflict. What will look like a weak act of a vulnerable Messiah is really strong. Peter is trying to be strong in human terms. But what Peter is blind to is to agape, or the self-emptying love that is at the heart of being a Messiah. His mind, that is Peter's, and maybe ours too, like many Christians throughout the ages, is set on a, this warrior-like leader who overcomes through force. Jesus just simply will not give in to that. Jesus rejects this. And I think we must stop here and take this in as to like what this means for our own walk with Christ as a community, in this community, with those, the wideness and, with the wideness and breadth that as Michelle mentioned in our, in our welcome that we seek to be, right? I think we need to stop here and just really like take this in. If we had the time, we would, but we don't have that time. 
We can do it, you can do it later, but just, just take some time to think about the, the disparity between Peter's understanding and, and maybe ours and what Jesus is saying. Jesus sought to do the will of God. He was vulnerable to suffering at the hand of the spiritual leaders of his day. His primary goal, though, was not simply to suffer, for suffering is simply a consequence of following, not the aim. Many times, I mean, look, face it, some people have used suffering as a badge of purity or value to what it means to being a Christian. I'm not one of them because there's been enough suffering in my life, and I'm sure there's been enough suffering in your life to happen to know that there's enough conditions to deal, to learn how to follow Jesus through hard times. It's not our aim to suffer. It doesn't prove anything. We don't follow Jesus to suffer, but we seek to do the will of God. That is and involves a love that suffers as it serves. But Peter must have been stunned when Jesus called him Satan. And as they returned to the others, they must have wondered in awkward silence, what just happened between these two individuals by the looks on Jesus and Peter's faces? And so the walk continues, and Jesus seizes the moment to say some things that, as I said, are more characteristic of a Zen master than a Bible teacher. These cone-like sayings of Jesus are meant to awaken us, as any cone is, to a new way of seeing and living radically from the roots. The purpose is to get you or me as a follower to shift, to move beyond a humanly conditioned way of thinking and see and explore a spirit-led state of awareness of what following a Messiah such as Jesus involves. Here are those sayings. If anyone to follow, deny yourself. Take up your cross, follow me. Those who want to save their life will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to gain everything but forfeit their life? What will they have to get, give to get it back? I thought about taking a long time, which I'm not, taking a long time and kind of going in and explaining these sayings, and then I thought, wait a second, that would betray the intentions of Jesus. Since we don't have time to delve into the meaning and the wisdom of these sayings, it may remind us that these words are not meant to be commands, but are meant to be seeds for the journey. Think about this journey that we are on. There are often crucial crossroad moments where we are struggling between what we might call human things and divine things. And we're faced with hard choices in the middle of those. We're compelled to honestly face up to what I'd call hidden competing commitments of the human and divine ways of life. And these words are meant to, to grow in us. It doesn't mean to deny yourself. It's such a complex thing when you get into it, but it takes a lifetime to unpack it, and it takes some very sometimes difficult circumstances to help that unpacking to occur. But there is an encouraging word in this, and I want to finish up with this. There is an encouraging word here. This is a journey that we're on. It's not like we're all together and I need to have together by about 12.01 today or something, right? It's a journey that we're on. And the living Christ is with us. And his risen presence enables this lifelong process 
to go on. It's not linear. Sometimes it's not even cyclic. It's, it's a roller coaster, folks. That's really what it is. Which I don't know if that's linear or cyclical or whatever. It's a roller coaster, right? Scary and fun at the same time. Although the older I get, the scarier roller coasters are. And maybe getting scary, following Jesus is getting scarier too as I get older. I don't know. Maybe it is for you, maybe not. But I think we should take heart that if, we're, if, 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 if we are finding our sense of uh, commitment, weak, or failing. Because, let's face it, friends, following Jesus into death and resurrection is the most challenging part of following him. And we'll get it wrong at times. We will get it wrong. But that doesn't mean we're completely lost. Because Jesus knows where to find us. Because he's already been in that spot. He's already been there. We are given the time and the space for walks and conversations about hard things. So here's where I kind of bring this. So I ask myself and I ask you, in light of David Baum's comments about walking and talking, is there a hard conversation you need to have about following Jesus right now? Is there a hard conversation? And is it time to take a walk with someone you trust and have a talk? Be encouraged. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, has gone before us, who for the joy set before him endured and became the author of the faith we confess today in our words. But he's also the one who is writing our life story. And that means you have to let the author write it <laughs> and be a part of it. May the Spirit of Christ, truly, may the Spirit of Christ be with us on this journey in our walks and in our talks through the hard places of following Jesus. May it be so. And all God's people said, amen. amen.